From our offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, and with me today, as usual, are Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute in Washington, D.C., and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum over in London. On today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Daniel Teichmann. Daniel is the founder and CEO of Hydrogenius and is joining us today from the company headquarters in Germany. Hydrogenius is a leader in the liquid organic hydrogen carrier space, and Daniel is going to give us some insight today on what all of that technical sounding verbiage means and the role that LOHCs play in the future of the hydrogen economy. As always, if you have any questions for us or for Daniel here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. A quick note to our listeners before we get into the show. If you enjoy the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, please do leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. We have a rapidly growing audience already, and we are delighted by that. But we believe the more the merrier here at Everything About Hydrogen, and those positive reviews really help us reach more listeners. And with that, let's get started. All right, guys. How's everybody doing? Chris, how are things over in the UK? Yeah, no, well, we, um, we're we on a new three-tier COVID system in the UK, um, which apparently is very bad, bad, and still quite bad. We had uh, <laughs> one civil servant to apparently remark to the BBC, we don't want people calling it a traffic light system because there's no green in this system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds pretty good. How about you, Patrick? How are things with you? Yeah, great. Um back from a, a week off, which is uh, nice. Oh. When you say a week off, do you mean you move from your bedroom to the sofa for a week? Or do you... <laughs> I, 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 yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> pretty much. Nice, nice. Well, during, during your week off, during your week off, Patrick, has there been any, uh, any news, big highlights in the hydrogen world that you want to pick up on to highlight for us? Absolutely none. No. Um, let me think. Let me think off the bat. Um, I think in the last episode we talked about the utility uh, utility uh, kind of uh, versions, but we released a paper, a little blog piece on uh, the actual That's scale right. of that. So <laughs> I got to plug plug the work that uh, that we put out. Um, Doug Power and Universal Hydrogen also did a thing, didn't they? The aviation piece that that came out. Recently. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to read through that article. Chris, did you have a did you have a chance to glance at? I know it's just a, a quick press release, right? So Universal Hydrogen is going to be partnering with Plug Power to build uh, aviation fueling infrastructure. Yeah, I mean it fits quite correct? interestingly with the kind of hydrogen hydrogen fueling infrastructure. Yeah. Important. Well, it fits quite interestingly because if you think about um, you know the strategic acquisitions that Plug Power made earlier in the year with with um, United Hydrogen and with um, Dina ELX, um, you know, so they now have their own ability to produce electrolysis. They have a lot of their own uh, transportation storage piece. Uh, you know, th- they are becoming a much more full value chain service provider uh, now. Plug Power, and so you know, it is now about you know. How do they integrate and connect into um, those end distribution models? And so it's quite a nice uh, tie up there. It certainly cements and expands their role in the U.S. And given all of their material handling expertise and the fact that they're now doing uh, I think this class six is the truck category that they're looking at for um, fuel cell automotive in the States. You know, you've got class six um, trucks, you've got. 
um, material handling requirements at multiple different sizes, and then you've got aviation, it's quite a nice spectrum for them to then sort of work, walk into some of these hubs. And, you know, Proteum has been talking to Zero Avia about hubs in the UK. A lot of people have been doing this because airports are just a great hub spot. You have all of these material handling vehicles that are constantly running day to day around the airport. You've got buses, coaches and taxis constantly coming to and from the airport. And then you've got the airplanes themselves. So it's actually a really nice area. So I think it's a quite clever tie up. Um, it'll be interesting to see how all of that kind of evolves. But I suspect, you know, uh, this won't be the last of these sorts of uh, tie ups seeing. It just makes a lot of sense. Well, and uh, teaser alert to uh, all of our loyal listeners, uh, Universal Hydrogen CEO will be on the show first thing next year, actually. So look out for that. Sorry, sorry, Patrick, I uh, cut you off. Always good to to know who we're going to be talking to in a a few months' time. I like the heads up, Andrew. No, um, I was was also going to say there's a couple of other kind of fun things that have been been going on. You know, there's obviously um, an investment kind of round that, that... highs on motors uh had which which i believe is reasonably successful i I presume chris you can kind of speak to some of that a little bit more but um also um i think in in the u.s specific news there was a uh kind of an allocation of 100 million um announced i think again to um by by doe right so uh all sorts of weird and wonderful things happening over a week off yeah well uh, on that, speaking of weird and wonderful, Patrick, uh, we do have uh, Hydrogenius on the show today, and they they work in the uh, liquid hy- liquid organic hydrogen carrier space. Uh, and Chris tells me you're the you're the go to expert amongst the three of us, at the very least, uh, on that field. Do you want to give a little bit of a you know two minute two second background on that? Two one? second and, might uh, be pushing it, but. Um... Two seconds it would be very fast, yeah. but I'd be eh, I'll, I'll, something I'll to do what I can. Um, so, so yeah, like uh, uh, let's call them LOHCs from from here on out. It's shorter than the mouthful. Yeah, no, that was that was clearly a trap I laid for myself on that yeah. one. I, that, yeah, for sure. <laughs> let's, let's go with LOHC. So look, like, uh, we talk about regularly the challenges in in storing and transporting hydrogen at, at scale, right? And one of the the avenues that that people have kind of talked about, well, like let's, the the regular ways of doing it. Let's start with those. Are, are compression, right? So put it, uh, storing the gas in canisters under pressure. Uh, uh, liquefying it, right? So, so cooling it to a temperature where it liquefies, and then um, the other common one that you hear about is is actually uh, binding it with nitrogen to create ammonia, and then using it or moving it around. LOHCs are effectively a, a, a another uh, chemical bond, similar to to how you might think about the the nitrogen bonding with uh, with the hydrogen to create ammonia, albeit they they use a different uh, different carrier. That allows them to, to be hydrogenated and then often dehydrogenated. Um, so those carriers, some of them are single use in this, the way that you hear about ammonia being, you know, blended or burned or used. Um, some of them are are, are by kind of uh, by kind of journey, right? They swing back and forth. Um, but what they do is they they facilitate the stable storage of, of hydrogen. They're typically actually a, an awful lot easier to manage than things like ammonia, right? So there's low toxicity. And also, yeah, like the, the, they offer a different kind of uh, profile for kind of moving the stuff around, and it's and it's an interesting and emerging space. You know, it's it's pretty pretty new in in a lot of ways, but it is a particularly interesting 
a way to solve for a lot of the challenges that we hear around transportation. So, yeah, going to be very interested interested to hear uh, how that's evolving, how that's changing. Um, I think typically you 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 know when when I'm thinking about LOHCs, you typically talk about six percent carriage rate versus. I think you typically talk around around 17, 18% for ammonia. So it's all about balance and value. There you go. There's two seconds. I'm going to interrupt you right now because, well, first of all, we have a time constraint need to get Daniel on the on the line. But uh, also, you're coming into a lot of our questions here, for, namely my first question for Daniel. So now, now you get to find out exactly how much I do know. <laughs> that's true. This is going to be a fact-checking uh, Well, exercise. what I've realized is at the end of this, what we probably need to do, and um, for our listeners who are feeling nerdy, maybe we should post this on Twitter. But uh, if you guys have haven't seen the um, the Hydrogen Council's advocacy group, Climate CH2 Ampion or Climate Champion Movement, have just released their Climate Champion Academy, which is a series of videos about hydrogen and about climate change, and also Q and A's about how much do you really know about hydrogen. Um, it is designed to be educational for family and for kids and friends like that, so it's meant to be pretty accessible. But maybe we should, uh, after this, see if we can get them to do an LOHC or a storage one, Patrick, and uh, and run through it. Am I getting homework here, or are you just suggesting additional <laughs> additional things to be done? I, either either way, we I guess we're going to have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we should do some sort of quiz thing and see how everyone actually scores on it. That's it. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll set the I'll set the curve. Maybe, maybe actually that would be a, a fun thing. We can see what feedback we get. <laughs> should have maybe at the end of each episode, Andrew should do like an outtake thing of sort of four questions and go right. Okay, four questions from the interview. How many can you answer and get our messages, our listeners to message on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, and get back to us and say how many. Can- we're on a roll today. I think if we give our listeners uh, homework, Chris, we're likely to uh, see a, a good attrition rate start <laughs> popping up. How about how about this? How about the consistently best scoring listener gets to actually come on the show and ask a question at some point? Folks, folks listening to this, or we could do that hydrogen, that everything about hydrogen swag we've been talking about, and start handing those out for free. Who's been talking about those? Me, me and Chris. <laughs> Hi, Daniel. Hi there. Hey, Daniel. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Where, where are you located? Uh, well, Patrick and I are both in uh, Washington, D.C., and Chris okay. is over in London. Okay. So it's early morning for you guys in, in the United States. And, uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, we should, we should be up and about and doing work by this point, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, Daniel, could you tell us briefly uh, and our listeners a little bit about yourself and some of the background of Hydrogenius and specifically what Hydrogenius does? Yeah, sure. Thank you for having the opportunity today. Um, yeah, so my personal background is actually that I'm coming from an engineering um, perspective. So I have actually worked at BMW Group Research and Technology in Munich, so from the automotive sector. Um, and I have been starting to work on hydrogen already 11 years back. And I mean, that was a time when it was not that dynamic and that broadly discussed as it is today. Um, But um, I I already back then felt that this is going to be a very important part of our future energy system. And after in total three years at BMW, and during that time, I also worked on my PhD, um, I actually decided to to drop out of the big company. Um, I had a great time there. 
don't want to miss it, but also realize that um, I'm more the entrepreneurial guy and that the big corporate is maybe not the long-term thing for me. So that's why when I quit BMW and founded Tidal Genius um, in 2013, so seven years ago, uh, I founded it together with three co-founders. All three of them are professors at the University of Erlangen. Um, we are a spin-off of the university, so we also have the university as a smaller shareholder. They have transferred a lot of IP that we had generated for the university prior to that. Um, yeah, and that's basically the story. So some people coming together and believing that, first of all, hydrogen is going to be a big thing in the future. And secondly, really believing that this technology that we're working on can make a huge and important contribution to make hydrogen happen. And Daniel, you you guys work specifically on LOHCs. And so for some of the less technically inclined listeners and uh, for myself as well, could you explain a little bit about exactly what LOHCs are uh, and what challenges in the hydrogen sector uh, they are designed to address? Definitely, yeah. I mean, when, talk, when we talk about hydrogen, hydrogen can have many advantages um, but certainly it's not typically the hand handling and transportation of hydrogen because hydrogen is a gas with very low density. So therefore, you first of all have to take a lot of effort to compress it or to uh, liquefy it at minus 250 degrees C and so on. Um, and then you always have, of course, the issue that hydrogen tends to react with oxygen, um, which, of course, in many cases you want to have as a final output, but which in terms of safety is also a certain risk. And the technology we have developed and we're working on is called liquid organic hydrogen carrier, which takes a different approach, which is not handling hydrogen as a molecule, but binding hydrogen in a chemical reaction to a liquid carrier, to an, to an oil, if you like, more or less, um, which can be transported in existing infrastructures that already exist today for liquid fuels. And what this means is that you're not having hydrogen as a molecule anymore, but safely bound to a carrier um, and, and then you can transport it using oil tankers on the sea, tank, uh, road tankers. You can use existing underground tanks, etc. You don't have all the aspects associated with molecular hydrogen in terms of flammability, reaction with oxygen and all of that. And then it, in the moment you need and at the place you need hydrogen, you can release the hydrogen again from this, from this oil. And you can use the hydrogen for whatever you like. And the oil, the carrier itself is not consumed but actually can be brought back to the site of hydrogen production and can be loaded again. So it's really like a um, like a cycle, uh, a reversible cycle, a little bit like a glass bottle of water that's being filled with water. You drink it, it's being refilled, and that's a bit the same concept, um, but always with the existing infrastructure that's already in place that is capable of handling, transporting, and storing um, hydrogen in the LOHC form. So Daniel, maybe maybe to dive in a little bit more into into kind of the general overview, you know, how how does one go about kind of producing an LOHC and and, and what do the hydrogenation dehydrogenization uh, systems actually actually look like, and um, how does that all I suppose fit together in the distribution chain? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, this carrier that we use is actually an industrial heat transfer oil that has been used the last 50 years already, which is already available in large industrial sized quantities, 10,000s of tons per, per year produced and so on. So that is some, um, something that's available already. And I mean, it's, it's very easy actually to imagine it. It's really just an, an oil. Um, which from viscosity, density, and so on, um, is, is similar to, I don't know, olive oil or whatever you, you might know from everyday practice. 
Um, but it can be used in these reactions to, to store hydrogen. And what we as hydrogenists are really focusing on is not the production of the liquid that can be bought on the market, but this is the technology that you need to store hydrogen in this liquid and to release it, fr to release it from it. And that's more or less like chemical processes, catalytic processes. So there's some catalyst involved. You have some pipes and valves and equipment and so on. So that's like typical chemical engineering that comes in play here. Um, and and uh, these systems you need, first of all, at the site where hydrogen is being produced. So you can imagine some large offshore wind parks or some big solar plants in North Africa or wherever. And there you produce hydrogen via electrolysis, and then you directly store it in this LOHC within our system, our product, uh, where this, this loading process happens. And then from there on, it's really just existing infrastructure, so nothing uh, really, really crazy, so just oil tankers that today transport crude oil and gasoline, and instead you can transport that oil. Or, as mentioned, underground tanks at gasoline stations not storing gasoline anymore, but storing that liquid. So that's really the boring part, if you like, because that's existing infrastructure. And then the second product of ours comes into play when you want to release hydrogen. And that's, again, a catalytic process involving some equipment. Um, and then you have high, high, high quality hydrogen in gaseous form once again. And as mentioned, the carrier is being transported back. So maybe maybe just a quick follow on you mentioned that the the actual carrier is um is an industrial kind of uh, fuel or a chem sorry maybe not fuel but a, a gas available right now um wh which one are, which what is your base kind of uh, chemical for for carriage yeah so that's um it's a, this is these heat transfer oils um, are produced on the basis of toluene so toluene being one of the biggest uh, feedstock carriers today coming from from crude oil also as a fraction. Um, I mean, of course, there are also some, some efforts to do that in a synthetic way, which is technically possible, but today is not being realized due to, to cost competitiveness. So at the moment that the feedstock is, if you like, in the end, um, crude oil, but with a big difference that today, I mean, toluene is mostly burned, like, for example, in cars and combustion engines, because 10% of the gasoline is actually toluene. And what we propose instead, instead of burning it, uh, is really just using it as a carrier that can be used over many hundreds of cycles as a hydrogen carrier. So I guess actually just picking up on that, I mean, one of the things that um, people are always trying to understand is sequencing timeline and how hydrogen technology sits alongside existing technology. So uh, obviously you can create synthetic uh, hydrocarbons using green hydrogen, right? I mean, that's one of the things that's actively being discussed and there's obviously a couple of companies that do that. Um, you know, how do you see and envisage um, the rollout of the sort of technology that Hydrogenius is kind of proposing and how does it sit alongside these kind of bigger decarbonization efforts? Something that's initially small scale, does it have to be large? You know, and how do you kind of answer the questions of, well, in a tacit way, you're supporting part of the oil sector, I guess, because, you know, at least initially, as you're describing it, you do require that, um, you know, oil fuel for the transfer medium. Yeah, first of all, I mean, there's not one solution that will do everything in the future. So therefore, I mean, having roots, how to produce synthetic diesel or synthetic uh, methane and so on absolutely makes sense. I mean, what what make what, what's a bit difficult for them is that, first of all, um, I mean, what you get in the end is not hydrogen anymore, but is, of course, a different um, carrier that you need to burn in some regard. So what we're really focusing on is applications where you want to have pure hydrogen in the end, right? Um, which, for example, if you produce green methane and then you feed it into some gas grid, I mean, then you have methane, right, which you can burn, but you cannot 
easily um, run a fuel cell with it. And I mean, certainly using di hydrogen directly has a number of advantages in terms of high efficiency, no carbon involved and, and so on. And the second thing is that all these um, gas to liquid uh, routes are rather expensive because what you need is a couple of things. You need green hydrogen. I mean, we need that too, but that costs money. Then you need CO2 in very pure form, right? Which today can be maybe got from some combustion processes, power plants and so on. But in a future scenario where you only have renewables, the only way is actually to get it from the air, which is a very energy intensive process. Um, and then you need another step for really doing the synthesis, which also has a limited um, efficiency in terms of the heating value that's being lost there. And therefore the prices for these synthetic fuels are always rather high. And the difference with LHC is that it's really just a temporary carrier for hydrogen. So what you get out again is really pure hydrogen that can be used for high quality applications like running fuel cells and so on. Um, and secondly, that um, I mean, you have this carrier, but apart from that, you don't need any CO2 involved or also no nitrogen like for ammonia production and so on. So I'm not saying that these others won't have a place, but what we focus on is really hydrogen consumers that really need hydrogen transportation in industry like steel industry refineries and so on um, and i'm sure we also see some synthetic fuels but i think they will always struggle a lot in terms of uh, costs in the end because you have a lot of effort to produce it and then you're burning it with a low efficiency and that will always make it hard and just a quick one i mean coming back a little bit to patrick's one we've asked and sorry guys i'm jumping through um one thing that we try and do for people is we try and give people, our listeners especially, a sense of what these systems look like because it can seem so abstract, right? And, you know, I think actually very kindly you lent me back in the day some photos in the World Bank report. So there are actually some photos in the back of that report of your system. But, you know, in terms of scale, you know, so say I'm consuming several tons of hydrogen a day. Let's take a hydrogen refueling station, right? So, for example, the Nikola ones, I think, were five tons of hydrogen a day. What does that look like? Is that a 20-foot ISO with a hydrogenous solution? Is that sort of multiple stacked on top of each other? You know, does it, you know, how quickly can you kind of scale from one system? Is it modular? Do you add and build? Or can one system actually take a fairly significant volume with a small footprint? Maybe you can actually just kind of just talk to that kind of descriptive element and what that piece of it looks like. Yeah, uh, I think about what you mentioned is really maybe like the, the lower threshold where our systems start and then it goes to much bigger systems which are more refinery like if you like in the in the extreme scenario really going to the large sources of hydrogen like if you think about really huge scale pv plants or wind parks and so on so then it will be much larger equipment on the consumer side five tons is this five tons a day is the smaller side of your system is that, that uh, i mean on 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 the, on the loading side, actually, yes. I mean, we can do it much smaller and like in containers, and we have done that over the last years for demonstration. But really looking forward into what's may, what makes economical sense, uh, I would say five tons is really like the smallest one. And what we're looking at is something also like 100 tons or 200 tons per day, which is then really large scale, I don't know, 200 megawatt PV plants and so on that, that, you, that you need there. Um, on the release side, um, it's, it's, we see something like the refueling station with, let's say, half a ton or a ton per day as, as the, the smallest. Um, and then it goes up to like the typical industrial consumers, or, or not the typical ones, but also the future industrial consumers like steel plants and glass manufacturing and all of that, where you can also get into the 100 tons per day scale. But something like 20 makes also a lot of sense. Um, so that's a bit the range. And of course, like because you asked how, how it looks like, of course, depends a lot on, on what we're talking about. Um, I mean, on a, on a refueling station, I think you're absolutely right with what you said. It's, it's maybe the footprint of a 20-foot container. 
um, a bit higher than, than that. Um, and that's actually a system where we can supply several tons of hydrogen per day. Um, so, so let's say two tons per day or three tons per day. Um, while the actual storage of the liquid can be in any existing tanks underground. And that's a huge advantage and difference because if you think about a five tons per day refueling station that you want to supply with gaseous hydrogen, um, then you need to have five to ten tons per, uh, at, at the site. And this is a huge number of these large 10 meter high storage tanks. It's a lot of compressed um, storage volume and so on. So it's actually just not possible in that scale. And with LOHC, you have the release system as described, and then you can have 100 cubic meter, 200 cubic meter, 300 cubic meter underground tanks, not consuming any footprint, being standard technology that's already being used today on, on conventional refueling stations. And that's why we believe that, that the footprint issue is a huge advantage with LOHC, especially for these medium to large scale uh, refueling stations. And we're actually building the first one here in Germany, in Erlangen, it will be commissioned like bit of next year together with H2 Mobility, that's a the company here in Germany that's doing all the, the refueling stations. And yeah, we believe that these medium to large scale refueling stations are one very promising market for LOHC. Daniel, just very quickly, what, what's the kind of relative kind of percentage of, of hydrogen carried in, in your LOHC or, or, or you know, you know what, what on a five ton basis, you know, kind of what, uh, what hydrogen output are you seeing at the, uh, at the fuel pump? I think what is good to, to, uh, to imagine is, is a one cubic meter, so 1,000 liters of the liquid carry 57 kilograms of hydrogen. And that, I mean, if you have one car with five kilograms, roughly, I mean, that's 10 cars, roughly. So when we talk about, for example, a 100 cubic meter tank, which is still quite small for a refueling station. So typically, at least here in Germany, you have something like 200 cubic meters. Uh, then you can see that it adds up to quite a large number of, of cars. Um, and maybe just as one comparison, you know, these compressed tanks, so 10, 12 meters high, maybe a diameter of two meters. So that's these typical 50 bar storage tanks. One of them has roughly 400 kilograms of hydrogen. Um, and, and that's a bit what we want to show also at the refueling station here in Erlangen. So there's this big tank, um, which is holding 400 kilograms. And then at the same time, you're actually standing literally on um, a 30 cubic meter tank, which holds something like 1.5 tons of hydrogen, so four times as much. Um, yeah, and of course, it can scale very easily 30 cubic meters to 200 cubic meters. Daniel, you've touched on you've touched on mobility, um, and obviously you've touched on industrial. I mean, just uh, maybe briefly, can you outline sort of the sectors, the sectoral applications that you see maybe outside of mobility, but you know what the big uh, near term and mid term and potentially long term applications for Hydrogenius's technology and LOHC is a little bit more broadly. Yeah, I think first of all, there are the, the existing uses of hydrogen, um, something like, for example, refineries, but also like glass manufacturing um, or, or some steel manufacturing and, and not steel, sorry, um, metal refinement. That's what I wanted to say, um, which use hydrogen today. So that's the first um, interesting, for example, refineries um, here in, in Europe, there are a lot of refineries really trying to at least substitute some part of the fossil hydrogen they use today by green, of course, under political pressure and CO2 costs and all of that. Um, so that's a very interesting market. And then there are these really new applications where today hydrogen is not used, but can be used. And there, I mean, steel is certainly one of the biggest ones. I mean, in Germany, steel manufacturing stands for roughly 8% of the CO2 emissions. So that's a huge share. Um, and they can go to hydrogen instead. Um, but of course, it needs to be green. And that's really amounts which are 
um, yeah, magnitudes above what is happening today. Um, and then, I mean, there's also some, I mentioned glass manufacturing before, or all the processes actually where you today use natural gas or whatever for heating, and instead you can replace it by, by hydrogen. And therefore, I think it's really a number of applications. We see that the highest value is, of course, coming from applications where you really have an intrinsic value of having hydrogen instead of something else, which is something like, of course, transportation, but also something like, um, for example, steel or, or glass manufacturing and so on, because there you really need hydrogen in some regard. Um, yeah, and, and that was what we will see. Of course, some of them are already there today because they're already using hydrogen. And some of them, like steel, is certainly a process which needs to come from two ends. First of all, they, of course, need to adapt their processes, which takes time and investment. But secondly, of course, it totally is depending on having available green hydrogen at competitive costs. And that's exactly what we feel a bit as our task to, to deliver, right? So really making green hydrogen available at low and competitive costs. So one thing I, I did want to ask uh, with my own company, Protein, when we've been talking to new technologies is often, um, it sounds very boring, but actually insurance and warranties. Because from a financing perspective, if you want to encourage lenders or institutional investors to come in and support these sorts of initiatives, the big question that they're going to have is, well, you know, how secure is the technology? You know, so, you know, and, and actually, you know, very rarely are people comfortable with financing they're the first of a kind, even fifth or tenth or twentieth of a kind. There's still quite often a reluctance to do that. So what I'm wondering, Daniel, is given that you're handling tooling and given that that's a well-known, um, you know, it's a well-known substance and that there's a lot of experience and technical awareness of that and also increasingly a lot of awareness around hydrogen, is that coming up in any of the conversations you're having with potential suppliers? And, you know, has there been any feedback or certification agencies that you've been working with, you know, that actually basically pick up your unit and deploy it faster than some of the other newer hydrogen storage technologies, which are, I guess, working with things that are completely different and where there is absolutely no exposure or previous reference to them. And that makes them harder to get that initial deployment up. Yeah, I think that is definitely an issue. I mean, this is all this chicken egg problem, which is, of course, very difficult for everybody in the market to, to get over, right? Because, I mean, not only LOHC, every technology in the hydrogen sector is very much struggling today to be really competitive today against like fossil fuels, right? And of course, what's, what's changing that whole story is, of course, political pressure is like pricing on CO2 and so on. But that's certainly something that will come over the next years and years to come. And at the same time, of course, everybody's starting from a rather high cost position because the quantities are not there yet. So therefore, I mean, this whole thing can only work with really political support and the will of the, the, the public and the society to go that path, right? I mean, that's, I think, the first thing. And the other thing is that, that absolutely the question is how much do you have to invest to get certain infrastructures running? And that's uh, we see as a big advantage of LOHC because, I mean, of course, you need to develop and to install uh, our technology for like these conversion steps and so on. But what you don't have to install is the, all the logistics part and all the infrastructure. I mean, for example, to give, uh, we are working on projects where you want to produce green hydrogen in Spain and then import it to Rotterdam via the Atlantic's, Atlantic. And there, I mean, of course, you can think about projects until 2050 where you build up some cryogenic hydrogen infrastructure for billions of euro or whatever. But the, the advantage with LHC is that you can use today's oil tankers um, and infrastructure for doing that. And that's why, for example, in some European projects that are currently being developed and funded by the EU, um, LHC is really seen as one thing where you can reduce these uh, development risks and these investment risks and so on, because it is infrastructure that's already there and that is already available. 
Um, yeah, and that's, that's, I think, really helpful in, in ramping up these infrastructures from zero where we are today to having something over the next 10 years. So, so Daniel, going back a little bit to the, the kind of hydrogenation, dehydrogenation process, just, just wondering around, you know, how much of a kind of a parasitic load or like what are the energy requirements in those processes and, and, and what do they, what do they do to your, your kind of, uh, your overall efficiency in terms of the kind of performance of, of LOHCs versus other, other relative carriers, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good and important question. So actually, these two processes of loading, and technically it's called hydrogenation of the carrier, um, and the unloading, which is called the dehydrogenation, are, um, yeah, how do you say, um, two processes, of course, which are from the energy balance and so on, and net zero, right? So um, if you do the one cycle, then you're back at where you started from. And what this means is that this hydrogenation, this loading process, is actually an exothermic process, so releasing heat, um, roughly um, 10 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen um, that in many applications can and should be used for um, for something. For example, we, we're building up a plant in a, in a big chemical park here in, in Europe. And there, I mean, you feed steam into a heat network and get an additional reward and, and value for it. Um, if you think about, for example, I don't know, North Africa, then you can really think, how can I use this extra heat to produce uh, water, right? So like desalination, how can you produce steam for a high temperature electrolysis and so on? So what I want to say is you want to make use of that heat because it's high quality, 250 degrees C heat coming out. And then, I mean, this dehydrogenation process is like the complementary process. Um, we need the same amount of heat, putting it into um, the reaction in order to release hydrogen, which is, by the way, also a very important safety feature. So in theory, there are also other uh, carriers which can be where hydrogen can be released exothermically. And that's... Um, of course, a big safety issue because as soon as the reaction starts, uh, you cannot really stop it because it's self-sustaining. So therefore, that's in terms of safety, that's good. But of course, you need to supply that heat. And I mean, in, all, in many of these um, industrial applications, you just take heat again from a heat network, from heat sources that are available there. And then, I mean, more or less, you can say, okay, at one place, you actually feed heat into a network, which is replacing the burning of natural gas or whatever. And in a different place, you're taking it from, from some grid. I mean, in smaller scale applications, like for example, refueling stations, that is not always possible. And then you go into, like for example, electric heating. Yeah, but that's a bit, bit how it's usually structured. Um, so you have these two processes which have a complementary um, energy balance. And Daniel, uh, sort of, you know, you touched on North Africa. I also wanted to sort of build on that a little bit uh, before we let you go. And, and, uh, Kind of follow up on, so I mean, obviously you guys are based in Germany, which has uh, made quite a bit of news in the hydrogen space with its uh, national hydrogen strategy uh, released over the summer. But I think uh, part of what you're saying and, and a big component of what LOHCs address uh, is moving hydrogen to markets that don't necessarily have easily accessible existing infrastructure to transport it, right? So maybe talk a bit about uh, which markets geographically, which national markets geographically, or which countries do you see or regional applications do you see that have the most potential for, for the kind of technology and, uh, and, and work that Hydrogenius is doing? I think the, the biggest um, sector that we see is really the question of where does the huge amounts, do the huge amounts of hydrogen come from that we will need in industry? And that's something where, for example, the German National Hydrogen Strategy states that already in 2030, more than 80% of the hydrogen will be imported. 
in comparison to being produced locally. And I mean, the, the EU has also released a hydrogen strategy over the year, which is also largely based on the assumption that you will um, produce hydrogen in the regions which are the, the most favorite, like Southern Europe for solar or Scandinavia for wind, and that you then need to transport these amounts of hydrogen um, through the country. And then there's the other thing that, of course, also Europe maybe cannot supply itself completely because um, there are other regions in the world like North Africa, like the Arabic countries, like, uh, I don't know, Chile and Australia and so on, where you have huge um, potentials for renewables. And that's the one first big thing for us. Um, we want to, to be one of the technologies that's really making this import um, possible in existing infrastructure without any safety risks and very efficiently in terms of costs. Um, and But then, I mean, that's the import dimension. But then also locally within a country or within the EU, if you like, um, there's this big issue of how do you transport there, how do you store, how do you supply a refueling station with um, limited footprint, with um, the safety issues that we mentioned before. Um, so that's basically um, our story. So it's it's import, but it's also um, like how to supply large-scale um, consumers. So uh, Daniel, I, I've got one last question before I, I think we can we can let you go. But but just one that's probably kind of at, at a kind of the front of a few people's minds for sure. You know, what is the the kind of the relative kind of value proposition for for you know your technology versus for for instance you know ammonia right which has a you know i don't know how many articles i see every week where you know ammonia as a you know a seaborne carrier for for hydrogen like what what's the what's the distinction between the two and and how do they fit together maybe mm-hmm. yeah i think the the first thing is that the, the question what do you want to use ammonia for right is it replacing conventional ammonia in today's industry. And I think that's certainly something which makes a lot of sense. So you're importing green ammonia, and that's, I think, also what will happen as a first step over the next years. Um, or are we talking about ammonia as a hydrogen carrier, where you really want to have hydrogen in the end, where, I mean, also with ammonia, you need certain steps. I mean, uh, getting hydrogen out of it, um, also needing energy for that. Um, I mean, ammonia synthesis is, is of course, something which is, is known for for some time. And in this carrier aspect, I mean, um, of course, you can model it in terms of costs and in terms of, of these other aspects. I mean, we see the huge import, uh, advantage that these carriers are very easy and safe to transport, which is a huge difference to ammonia. I mean, ammonia is, of course, you can transport it, but you know how the toxicity looks like, you know how safety looks like. Um, and, for example, we have as one investor and, and shareholder, FOPAC, FOPEG is one of the big companies operating tanks in 50 ports of the world. So like these huge tanks for liquid fuels and so on. And they can handle ammonia, no doubt. But I mean, the, the effort that you need to take to, to tra- store and transport ammonia compared to uh, a conventional oil like LOHC is magnitudes larger because it's highly toxic. It is something you don't want to get, uh, you don't want to lose in your tanks and so on. And therefore, we see this big advantage. If you really talk about supplying hydrogen in the end to consumers, LOHC is a way of doing that at very high purity, very high quality hydrogen um, in existing infrastructure without any any safety issues. Um, If you talk about delivering green ammonia to industrial consumers instead of conventional ammonia, makes a lot of sense. No doubt about that as well. Great. Well, I think uh, with that, unless Andrew has uh, has any follow-ons... No, no, we've already we've already <laughs> promised we'd let Daniel get back to his real work, his real work <laughs> twice now, and then kept him up. So, 
Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. It was really, really a pleasure speaking with you. I appreciate you making the time. Sure. All right, Patrick, as the resident LOHC expert at everything about hydrogen, uh, let's start with you. Uh, let's, but let's talk a little bit big picture first. Uh, you know, let's take the LOHC market and the LOHC space big picture. What are your thoughts? What's your input? Um, I have never ever claimed to be an expert on uh, on on LOHCs, but but I'm happy to to oblige to some degree. Um, I think that's the most modest uh, expert, ex- <laughs> expertise can be relative as oh, well. Well, there dude. we are. There, I, I guess I guess in, I guess in that <laughs> case, I'm, I'll have to carry this this particular burden. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, interest and significance. Uh, attached to how we're going to transport and move hydrogen. And uh, no matter how you kind of view the market, no matter what what you expect the, the applications to be, one of the big areas that we keep coming back to is around how, how it's transported. And, and in that space, LOHCs have uh, a, a kind of a, a specific kind of uh, benefit or opportunity in that, you know, easily you know, kind of stably transportable, non typically non non toxic or lower toxicity. If there's is kind of that element to it, and also you know, it it makes it a little bit easier, right? It makes it more more planable. So you know, when you think about the questions and conversations we have about transporting it uh, via trucks in you know canisters under you know x you know hundred psi or you know the cost of uh, cryogenics or kind of liquefaction. This is what it's trying to to offer, right? It's offering a more stable, a readily usable uh, transportation tool, and yeah, like like you know where this gets, I suppose, more interesting beyond that kind of just very direct application is one of the things that we start having conversations about, and you see this when you know obviously there's been the you know kind of announcement of uh, I think it's fifty billion Australian dollars in the the Pilbara project um, with a view to exporting. Um, uh, exporting hydrogen, really, right? And I think to some degree they're they're contemplating ammonia, but you know it is about a seaborne trade. How do we move from particularly low cost locations to you know big markets? And maybe that's a regional market. Maybe it's a global market. We we don't really know that, I suppose yet. But one of the the one of the questions is you know how if we can get prices very very low in a certain place, can we find a way to move? very, very low cost hydrogen to bigger markets in a very kind of uh, standard, stable way that's reasonably low cost. And, and that's that's a little bit of where the LOHC space is playing. Uh, it's the same kind of conversations around ammonia in some ways. Um, but yeah, this is it. This is this is the kind of the challenge that's being addressed in many ways. Maybe the maybe the follow on question then maybe for Chris is, you know, <clears throat> obviously you're in the space looking at developing projects right now. What kind of role or function do you think this sort of a technology plays for you or could play for, for stuff you're trying to do? Um, in essence, uh, you know, th- so what I was trying to get at is that there are a lot of companies in the space right now that are looking at hydrogen at various technologies around production, around storage, around use, etc. And all of these companies have very clever and interesting ideas. And the problem that all of them have is that investors are terrified of anything that smells, looks, or vaguely feels like it's not been done for 30 years. And that, you know, it's a very crass way of putting it, but it is the reality of it. And so the challenge that we're seeing in the market is that 
there is almost no investor appetite to support um, first, second, or even third of a kind projects using new storage technology. And the only way that you can effectively fund them is 100% equity. Um, and of course, if it's 100% equity, your return on capital makes a lot of projects very tight on the financials. And so the only way you can then balance that is either there are some other incentive structures sitting there, usually some kind of policy incentive structure sitting somewhere along the line, um, a large upfront capital grant, or effectively you're working with a corporate that's taken a strategic view on the technology and is therefore effectively willing to fund a certain amount of cost off balance sheets to get a version of that technology working for enough hours to get investors and um, insurers and other bodies comfortable with technology. And, and that's the reality of all new technologies in the hydrogen space that we are coming across at the moment. And it's very much the case as well for liquid organic hydrogen carriers. So Chioda, which is a liquid organic hydrogen uh, carrier in Asia, um, is able to finance off balance sheet. They can do this slightly differently. I think the challenge Hydrogenius has in many senses is that it's a really interesting solution. Um, it's just that from a commercial project perspective right now, it still smells and feels too much like a prototypical technology just because not enough of them have been built and financed to get investors comfortable. And that's not my opinion as a project developer. That's my opinion as a developer talking to investors and people in the market. And that's the feedback they're giving us is anything that's not been done 30, 40 times before, it, it just gets everyone really nervous. And I, I, I suspect the challenge that then poses for someone like Hydrogenius is a lock-in effect, which is, you know, if you can't get the first few systems built because you have to do them 100% equity, um, and therefore people turn to very conventional forms of storage, mostly pressurized and maybe cryogenic, does there become a point at which there's a certain lock-in impact where a certain number of projects have already reached you know, a certain number of computing stations already built a certain way, a certain amount of companies have configured their sites a certain way, and that makes it harder. Now, to the credit of Germany, who I think have done a very good job in supporting domestic businesses, there's been a huge amount of government support and support from businesses in Germany to help Hydrogenius to get its systems piloted. And Hydrogenius have some great backers, including AP Ventures, that have been able to give them access to the right sort of strategic corporates. So I think they have avoided a lot of the worst extremes of the phenomenon that I'm describing, which does really hamper a lot of technologies in the space, but it's certainly not easy. And that I think is the main thing I see, you know, and that I appreciate is somewhat of a general comment about new technologies in the space, but I think it is a very relevant one in the storage sector as well. And one that I think LOHCs, um, especially ones that are looking at really large scale projects to become commercially appealing are going to struggle with. Um, so, yeah, so my question then to you, Andrew, is I think one of the things that I find interesting is, you know, I can get, as you probably are telling, sometimes a little bit, I, I say sometimes a little bit frustrated uh, because I feel like there's often a, um, I feel like there is a market failure amongst a lot of the investment community to realize that, you know, to get to net zero means we have to invest in technologies that we don't currently invest in, which means can't sit and wait for 10 years for someone else to prove it <laughs> right because if you wait 10 years for someone else to prove it and then you invest in 10 years time you're not going to get to net zero uh so in a sense it requires investors to 
take more risk than they have done historically and to accept a lower return than they've done historically. Two things which investors hate doing. Um, you know, so I guess my... Yeah, I mean, they're going to get... I mean, I think, you, I think you've worded it quite well, right? I mean, like, <clears throat> I mean, you've essentially put your, your, your finger on the catch-22 that the investors are confronting it at the moment, right? If you're only going to invest in things that have been done 30 or 40 times before, well someone's got to do it 30 or 40 times before. So there's a bit, there's a bit of a first mover situation. Sorry, I cut you off. No, I was going to say, so my question to you, uh, you know, Andrew, on this one is, you know, when you're sitting and listening to something like uh, the LHC technology that Hydro Genius have, you know, are you sitting there kind of thinking about it as, ooh, this is really cool and interesting. Is that your initial gut or is your initial gut, you know, how do we do this commercially or is your initial gut, why is no one doing this? And, it sounds like a stupid question to ask, but actually where your gut goes on those three questions is to me quite significant. Yeah. Uh, so my, my, my gut reaction to it is that it strikes me as a super interesting, as a super interesting methodology, right? And a super interesting technique. Yeah. Yeah. So doing that gut reaction question, my, my initial sort of feeling is, it seems like a weird, it, it seems like, I think this is probably pretty obvious, but it's an, it's an extra step that you don't necessarily think of in energy transmission, right? That's, it's not something that you typically, your common consumer, your, your average person looking at the energy sector in transmission, they don't think of something like hydrogen being used as, you know, as you guys always say, it's an energy vector. You don't think of, uh, combining it with a carrier and then decoupling it on the on the end side on the user side, right? So it's, I guess it's a little bit challenging to get your head around why you would do it that way. And then it obviously begs sort of questions. Then you have to you familiarize yourself with the hydrogen sector and transporting hydrogen and the costs of doing so over long distances. I mean, it becomes obvious why LOHCs are a good solution for certain applications. But I suppose the initial reaction is like, oh, that seems like an extra step that uh, we don't necessarily have in other sectors and other uh, other parts of the energy sector. Um, that's maybe a dumb way of looking at it, but I think that's the initial reaction. I think that's about. I think that's about right in in terms of a, a good check comparison. I mean, I think it's the intuitive yeah. way, but it's not. It's not the right way. It's the intuitive way. I, I, I guess. Yeah, but but. You know, like you, you raise the you raise one of the the points that that you know I, I come across when I talk to people about this, which is you know what is the, the the kind of parasitic load, right? What is the the cost of you know hydrogenation, right? And then dehydrogenation, yeah. right? Like, and, and that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I came up with decoupling, but I meant I meant hydrogenation, dehydrogenation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Patrick. it's it's fine. It, it, like you know meaning meaning is taken but like it's 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 a common enough question and like i think i think you know we we still are working out a lot of the the kind of the transportation um and storage challenges like there's obviously been made been good progress made and there's been there's been good progress in reducing costs especially in a lot of this these spaces but you know there are still some barriers right there's still some challenges and um and that's why, you know, and uh, Chris, I know you mentioned uh, Toyota uh, as well, who are, are doing similar work. You know, that's why people are looking at these these solutions, because they're trying to solve for 
um, specific challenges or difficulties that are being experienced both in the market itself, but also in terms of looking at the historic challenges we've had around this. And, and I think the point around deployment is, is reasonable, right? Like it's, it's challenging, you know, how much, how much risk are people willing to bear on, you know, newer technologies or, or things that, you know, they maybe don't have the, the full track record for. And given what this is, you know, there's a there's a challenge in in pure volume terms, right? These are big projects. Typically, they're expensive to to build. When you add that that kind of uh, that cost basis back in on top of the uh, the kind of newness, it, it can be a challenge. It can be a big challenge. Maybe one thing, Patrick, though, that you know you and me have talked about before, and I think is really important to this discussion, is the fact that actually one of the single biggest challenges in my mind when we're thinking about these solutions is thinking about. Um, you know, and Jen Baxter was very good at this on the earlier podcast is, you know, we, when we talk about net zero, I think too often we talk about new energy technologies and about building new systems. And sometimes we don't think about, okay, but actually the point is net zero carbon into the atmosphere. And what does that mean? Well, net zero carbon into the atmosphere in theory means that where possible, you want to repurpose the existing infrastructure where you can, and you want to build as little new infrastructure as possible. Because the more new infrastructure you build, inherently, there's going to be a higher CO2 and greenhouse gas effect associated with that. Now, some new infrastructure is inevitable. You have to do that. But where you can, you know, the preference is to use the existing infrastructure. And I think this is where LOHCs are quite interesting. I mean, you know, if I think about, um, you know, large scale depots and I think about ports or I think about um, rail or I think about uh, aviation, you know, in a number of these areas, it's very typical now to have, and to be honest, even petrol stations, it's very on, not very common now to have very, very large scale underground storage tanks, you know, and they're not pressurized um, and they're not chilled and they're not sort of Kevlar lined or anything like that. And actually, you know, if you're thinking about where do you go in terms of, you know, reusing that infrastructure, LOHCs is, are actually a very nice answer to that question. Because they're not all immediately repurposable for ammonia. Some of them are, but not all of them are. And ammonia still has its own safety implications. And hydrogenous is certainly not toxic in the way that ammonia is, which is a non-trivial issue for a number of people. Um, and, you know, that I think is, a, is an angle that maybe, I don't know how you price for that. And in some senses, that's, that's part of the challenge of complexity in carbon pricing in these markets, right? Which is, you know, how do you price for the fact that Hydrogenius allows you from an energy systems perspective through its LOHC technology to use existing infrastructure and therefore you don't waste your carbon allowance on building brand new infrastructure for storage when you already have existing infrastructure? I don't know how you price for that and I don't know how you count back into the energy system calculation the benefits that that reusability of existing infrastructure grants you. Um, but that, to me, is a market dynamic that is really important to the business cases of technologies like OLHCs, but is not currently being reflected in their commercials. I think that's right. I think that's a big point. I think that's a very big point. And I think, you know, there is a degree of opaqueness around <clears throat> infrastructure that, like, even, even you know, decisions around infrastructure, right? Because you know, we, we often hear an awful lot about, you know, natural gas pipeline blending um, or repurposing natural gas infrastructure. And, and you know, in, in some places that's readily, 
readily doable. It's 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 pretty clear what you can and can't do, or what kind of blends you can get to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In some places, it's it's a, it's a little more opaque, and and there's probably an awful lot of, of system diagnostics that'll be required to work out what that is. Um, but it's the same principle that you're talking about, right? It's um, a pre-existing infrastructure that essentially you'd have to retrofit maybe a little bit, or maybe not at all. And um, you know, I, I think some, thinking about a petrol station, particularly if you if you need something to sit as a reserve, and you're concerned with uh, safety issues, for example, um, something like an LOHC that's not reactive, but that you can you know separate the hydrogen from uh, from when you need it, or maybe small, store smaller volumes of hydrogen, that starts to be a you know a, a demonstrable or, or sellable benefit, right? So there's there's a lot in this, um, you know, and, and for folks folks listening in on this, like these are these are some of the big challenges around designing these systems, both, both domestically and internationally. Right? We always talk about the question of you know uh, centralized versus aggregated kind of uh, distributed production, right? That that comes up a lot, but also immediately baked into that whole conversation is the the transportation constraints that you you exist under in any of those systems, because if you can't move it, you can't centrally produce it. So, so this is, this is one of the key things for, for scaling that, that, that needs to be worked out. Well, uh, Chris, you don't know this, but before you signed on earlier, I was telling Patrick that I spent some of my morning, uh, I guess you call it joy scrolling now through the, uh, Biden Harris clean energy, uh, platform website. And, uh, they actually have, Little, a couple of binnies for green hydrogen in here, and one of them uh, very specifically identifies retrofitting existing uh, infrastructure assets to give the market access to green hydrogen at the same cost as conventional hydrogen within a decade. That, that is just a statement sitting there with no supporting uh, plan or any sort of details beyond it, but uh, I think you guys uh, have nicely highlighted one of the things that, you know, country like uh, the United States has to confront and, uh, you know, that's going to be coming in as a top of the agenda thing uh, starting in January. So on that note, on that political note, guys, I think we're going to have to leave it there because we are running over time. So unless you guys have anything else to add here at the end that I've missed? Maybe not missed, but I think think maybe to land on that I think is a good note to land on, I would say... There is no one-size-fits-all solution to hydrogen storage. Um, I am very convinced that LOHCs will have a role in storage. I think the sorts of solutions that companies like Hydrogenius have put together are going to be an important part of the mixture. Um, There are challenges, and like many things in the hydrogen world, I would caution people against assuming that any one of these technologies is is a silver bullet. Um, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have incredible versatility and applications in a wide array of sectors. And, you know, it was fantastic to learn more about that technology. And, uh, you know, especially given that we've spoken to Anas before about solid state hydrogen storage, um, I think, you know, fleshing that out a little bit more. And I know a lot of our listeners have been keen for us to talk more on the storage space. So I thought it was a really useful discussion and hopefully shows some of our listeners a little bit more um, so it gives a bit more of an insight into other options available on the market. So I, I thought that was a, a thing I wanted to emphasize before we wrap up today. Excellent. Well said. Patrick, I'm not going to give you the chance to uh, weigh in and add any more time to this. So next time, Patrick, this floor is all yours. 
That does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Dr. Daniel Teichman, founder and CEO of Hydrogenius, for joining us on the show today. Thank you, as always, to Patrick and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. Lastly, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 